Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Andrew Deutsch. He's the CEO at Fangled Technology, which is an international trade consultancy. So, Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, so I guess we, we connected on one of these, I guess, virtual, should, it, should I call it trade show type event platforms? I think so. Yeah, it was a networking meeting. Yeah. It was a networking meeting. Yeah. yeah I was doing research, seeking chemical companies to talk to a, for a client of mine. And I happened to see you in one of the meetings and went, oh, I got to talk to that guy. <laughs> so, so I sent you, I sent you a note with, you know, and that's, that's really how networking works. It's you see someone who you, you really want to talk to, not just for the sake of talking, but there was a real, a real issue, something to talk about. I reached out to you and said, hey, I really want to understand your company because I need some feedback for a product that I'm, I'm doing research for. Yeah. So what uh, sort of struck me about, I guess, our conversation is the broad experience that you had because you came in you know when i when i see people that have a marketing background i expect certain things but you really have kind of an experience set that kind of goes quite a, a bit further than that can you sort of like wh- where did that start from you uh, for you <laughs> well my my background is actually in international trade and global marketing so when back a few a few years ago when i was a student <laughs> I wanted to be in international business. And at that time it was, I mean, there was no internet. The fax machine hadn't really even been invented yet for, for massive use. I think at that time a fax machine was like $2,500 or something like that. But I, I really wanted to get in the global market. And the challenge was if you went on to get a, a master's at that era, most masters, guys with a master's were, were unemployed. MBAs were, were dime a dozen because the market really wasn't doing that well. So I went back to school and studied industrial well, psychology with a, a focus on the industrial market to really build how you do multicultural marketing and sort of separated myself from, from the, the rest of the, the MBA guys in that I had a very strong skill set. And how do, you, how do you market in markets that are different than, than your culture? So from there, I started working quite a bit on developing sort of a global trade strategy. And in, I think it was 93, had gone down after several years of, of working. I went down to Brazil for 90 days to work on a project and ended up living there for 10 years, where I really sort of built my unique way of, of helping American companies set up trade agreements, whether it's distribution, whether it's manufacturing, sales throughout South America and later globally. So I've lived and worked and, and sold into, I think, 120 different countries over the years. Wow. So... So walk me through how you think about that at a high level, because we all talk about localization and stuff like that, but you've actually done this at, at multiple levels. So at a high level, how do you sort of think about it and, and walk me down you know, from strategy to some of the, the tactical considerations? Sure, sure. I mean, most, most American companies built their global strategy based on a whim. 
And what I mean by that is, you, you, you know, when we, we begin consultations, the most common conversation we have is, well, we're already doing some international business. We want to grow. Okay. Where are you selling? Well, we, we've got a pretty strong foothold in England, and the Australians are buying our product, although the freight's killing us. And uh, the Canadians are, are doing well. By the way, there was a guy who worked for us in a different division who spoke Spanish. So now we're doing a little bit, bit of business in Central and South America. And you kind of go, well, that's, that's interesting. But where, where are markets where your product really could do well or your services? Oh, well, that's what we hired you for. <laughs> so so I, I literally worked with a company that took a, a kid out of the repair shop and promoted him to be the director of Latin American sales. He looked good in a suit and he could speak Spanish, they thought. It was kind of like back in the 70s when bands like the Monkees came around. None of them could really play, but uh, they looked good in the, in the outfit, so they became a band. So, so from a high level, there, there was never really a strategic concept of where are the markets? And, and usually the next phase, the next level of that conversation is, well, we do have some markets where they don't speak English because we met them at a trade show. So, and I, I could tell you story after story of being at like a trade show in, in Germany. And within an hour, you'll meet the number one company in the same country 12 times. <laughs> I am the biggest distributor of your product in my country. Ah, it's nice to meet you, biggest distributor. <laughs> Two minutes later, another guy who, who carries. Mathematically, it's impossible, but you can discover at a trade show that math doesn't matter because you can meet 20 number ones in the same meeting, and none of them are really the right trade partner. So you develop strategies in, in, in those respects of how, how do you filter through the number ones to find out who is number one? Yeah. So how, how do you know you're ready to do that? Because for me, I always talk about core, core markets and outside and, and being able to execute and re regionalization and, and I guess sort of customization of product. Like how, how do you know that you're ready? Well, the, every project that we do in my company, we, we, we tell everyone we are a strategy first organization. All of the tools mean nothing until you build your strategy. So you go back to your product and you say, what, who is my customer? If my product is being sold somewhere, what, what are the benefits that, that these people are getting from what I do? What, what is the problem I'm solving? What is the pain I'm curing? All, all of that sort of talk. And in that, then where in the world do people need that problem solved? So, so I'll give you a perfect example. There was a company in Brazil who manufactures ceramic roof tiles, mm -hmm. and they want to export all over the world. What they never really looked at was how different environments and different regulatory and installation practices and all these types of things would regulate. And their process was not up to speed to be able to create that tile that could be sold in the rest of the world. What they had was fit for their climate, their environment only. So the viability study that was done there, as we looked at the problems they solved and, and you know, they all were the cheap, we can make it cheaper, we can make different colors, we can do all of these things, didn't matter at all because they had to up their game in terms of how they were curing the materials to be able to meet the international standards. So it's, it's all of that has to come in. So at the beginning, it's a very messy process. It's it, you have to be willing to dig and understand there are products made in the U.S. that are absolutely top notch. Number one, 
that could not sell anywhere else in the world except for maybe Canada. And there are products that are made in the U.S. that really don't serve our market that well, but would kill overseas. Mm. So you, you have to go back to that core. What, what are the real pains? What, what, are the, what are the problems? What are the challenges that your manufactured product, your service or otherwise solve? And where else do they have those problems? Mm. Then you got to look at the economics of those places and the ease of doing business and all of these other factors that matter. Just because company country X is the perfect market, you solve their problems, but they don't have the money and they don't have the skilled labor to be able to do that. So there's a whole training or they're not even aware that they have the problem. So you're going to have to go through the whole marketing of first convincing them that the problem that you can solve exists. There's all of those factors. And the, the world is big. I've sold in 120 countries and every single one has its own personality its own its own way of doing business and its own needs and differences. The very core benefits of a product that would make an American consumer want to buy it may not matter in another country. Mm. I mean, I'm assuming with a lot of things, it comes down to, like you said, pricing, right? Like you, if, especially since, since if you're manufacturing in the U.S. and you're trying to export it, you have to make sure that it's, it's in line with whatever competitive options they are locally. It's one of the key factors, but not the first ones you look at. Okay. Because if, if, and, and I'll give you an example, when, when we, I was involved in the plastic strapping industry, our product was more expensive at cost, but much cheaper in use. So for example, we were selling to the tobacco industry in Brazil. They were, they were closing 150 kilo pallets of, of processed tobacco. Thousands and thousands of these things a year would go through a factory. The domestic made strapping that would go in the strapping machines had a failure rate of about one to two percent. Every time the machine shut down, it would take 20, 30 minutes to refeed the machine and get the line up and running again. Ours had a point zero 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 one. In other words, in a day, it might fail once if if and, and that wasn't even normal. And there were other factors that were involved that in the end, using our strap, which was slightly more expensive, landed was so much less expensive in the total value prop of, of its use. Then we discovered regulatory issues in Brazil, where if you imported a product that was being re-exported as part of your manufacturing process, if you could document it leaving, you got your taxes back, the import. So we knew that every pallet used X number of meters of strap. And at the end of the year, they would show that to the government and say, we shipped X number of pallets with this many meters of strap. And they would recover the, the taxes, which then was even more of a cost savings. So all of those factors, that, that's why companies come to folks like us that have the experience, because hiring that talent internally is very difficult. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So you, you spent a lot of time dealing with, I think, companies that create containers in the chemical industry. Tell yeah. me a bit more about your experience here, because I think that's we, we talked a bit about that when we, we got together. Yeah, one, one of my most, most recent engagements was working with a company that manufactures 55-gallon steel drums. And they'll make it in any size that you want as long as 55 gallons. And it's an interesting industry because the, the typical company in that industry, talking about marketing, they, they promote the product. We, we use a certain type of steel. We meet ANSI standards. We have ISO. We test in-house. All of the things that they brag about are the very things that you have to have just to be in business. 
It would be like General Motors going to market tomorrow bragging that their cars come with tires. And you go, and by the way, they run on gasoline or they run, you know, it's, it's, it's table stakes in a poker game. Well, the, the way that we were able to grow that business was to really look at that value prop. Why, why do people do business with this smaller independent company as opposed to the huge multinationals? We did intensive, intensive qualitative studies with, with existing customers and past customers. You know the number one reason people did business with that company? They answered the phone. That was it. They answered the phone. Number two, number two reason that they were popular with their customers and, and continued to do extensive business. When I, as the buyer, have a run on a product or I've miscalculated, they're the only ones with flexible manufacturing that can help me in the same week. Competitors could take months to fix it. The third one was when they goof and we have a defective product, they own it, they fix it and replace it and never leave me hanging. So those were the, those were the, main, they were the main three. And then there were other factors in terms of their technology. They could, they could use thinner steel, which made it less expensive to get higher performance than competitors and a lot of other things. But their business was all marketing based on table stakes when they really had this cool value that made the company significantly more attractive to the market. And they grew based on that new marketing strategy. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, it, what I like is you're talking about client experience opposed to your traditional sort of advertising push, push, push things. Yep. And, and I guess the marketers that I know that are kind of really thinking more progressively, I was always thinking about it from every touch point, more of a brand management strategy versus your yep. traditional definition of a marketing strategy. Yeah, the, the, the challenge is when you talk to the guys that count the beans, yep. marketing's an expense. And they don't see the power of owning that brand and what it can mean to the company in, in terms of that customer experience. When the customer experience is amazing, people remember it. It's, it you, can, you can go back, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a brand of audio equipment called TAC or Teak, depending on who you, mm -hmm. and they've been out of business for years. Someone bought the brand, put out half rate electronics, and they couldn't keep it on the shelf. Because the brand loyalty from this incredible company made these sort of half-market products popular because, because of the power of a brand that had been away for years and years. It's such an important part. And also, if you build that voracious advocate for your brand and you, you decide to go horizontal or parallel and come out with new product lines, based on the value of that brand, people can immediately believe that those new items meet those same standards. So if a steel drum company, say, started making plastic drums in that industrial space, well, God, they, they have to be good. Those steel drums, the way they treated us in that steel drum industry made my life so much easier. I was so much more confident in my purchasing. I knew I wasn't going to have problems. I knew I wasn't going to shut my plant down because of an error. The plastic ones are probably going to be great, too. So all, all of that is, is important. Our, our slogan at, at Fangle is our job is to help our clients convert every touch into a voracious advocate for their brand. And that's what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. So you touched on sort of product extensions and brand. What, how far can you take that? Or how should you approach looking at opportunities like in the same markets or product extensions? And so what are the limits of those? Well, again, in the global market, just because you have a product extension doesn't mean that that's going to work in every location around the world. So, for example, going back to the strapping industry, the high end, very precise, expensive 
machine-grade products for high-speed applications sold as far away from the manufacturer as you could imagine. Hand-grade, not highly technical, which is more of a commodity item, never, never left beyond the surrounding countries of the U.S. So if you're going, if you're going to, to build your global strategy and you start to, to stake your claim globally selling your products, when you start to do extensions, one of the things that has to be studied is, is this product viable in all those locations or is it domestic? Because as you start to spend your marketing dollars, do you want to promote something at the other side of the planet that may not be viable for their market or, or something that, that's not legal to sell there or something that doesn't meet the minimum requirements for that market? All of that has to be taken into account both for your domestic sales and your international. And the other is, are there products that we can make here in the U.S. that have incredible market potential overseas, but you can never sell here? In the electronics and the, and the robotic world and all of that, what about energy choices that, that don't exist here? If you're, you're making a domestic product that's going to export, you need 220 instead of 110. There's all, all of those factors are, are involved in it. Again, it's messy until you study it and refine it to, to where it becomes a strategic plan. Then you pick your tools to, to be able to, to make that market happen. Hmm. That makes, makes a lot of sense. Now, you, I noticed on social, you're like posting about different fallacies and, and sort of mindset things. What are some of your favorites? You know, it's, it's funny. I, I do that because it's so important. I joke about insomnia theater all the time on television you know you i'm up early and i turn on the tv and they're selling some product that nobody even knew there was a problem to solve <laughs> you know plastic handles to pick people up out of couches they can't get up on their own and so one one of the things that always fascinates me even in, in the political environment not not to get into it the ability to use false logic to convince people which is something that i shy away from all the time I think transparency and truth. So like, like for example, the, the idea of a false equivalent or, or the, the whatevers. So someone, someone is saying, I think of a good false equivalent. The person is a murderer. And you go, okay, how is he? Well, he hits someone with his car. And you go, okay, so that's involuntary manslaughter. Not all murderers are the same. There's manslaughter, first degree, second degree. There's all of these different categories. but but if you just say murderer, all of a sudden, it's all of those things. It's the same in, in, the business, in the business world. Their products are terrible. And you say, well, they did have a failure with a product in 1972 that became popular and, and, and known in the news, but all of the other things that they've ever done since. So is, is it equivalent to say that their products are terrible because they had one failure? And all of those are sort of those, those fallacies. The, the arguing based on fallacy is is a great way to convince the not so intelligent. <laughs> but in the end, it's terrible for your brand. So we, we started doing one of the other ones that we're going to be doing eventually is, is cognitive biases, which is a similar, similar concept. Stay tuned. Those are coming after <laughs> I get done with my... And, and the other, the other is that I'm always fascinated with is the origin of words, which actually we're starting to record right now as, as just sort of an act. Again, the importance of precision language and growing your business. People... People don't even realize when they use an expression what it actually means. Yeah. I mean, you know, somebody gets turned into their boss and they say, oh, the guy sold me down the river. And you go, wait a minute. 
The origin of that has to do with an, the ugliest time in America. It's, it's a reference to slavery and people getting people who were freed from slavery and sending them down the river to sell them back into slavery. I don't use that expression because it, it's truly offensive. Yeah. But we say it all the time. I've, I've been in meetings where people don't realize you're trying to negotiate a discount and they, they'll tell you, ah, he's trying to Jew me down. And they don't realize that it's an offensive reference to a stereotype about Jewish people. So we're, we're, those are things that just fascinate me in terms of how they're used and where they come from. It's mm. part, of the, part of the language learning over the years. Yeah, for sure. Now, in the audio, you, it's going to be hard for this to understand, but, but you've been really experimenting quite a bit with your use of different sort of tools in terms of creating a better experience through sort of Zoom and, and other media. Like what, what sort of got you curious along that path? Because you weren't doing this content creation before. Well, the, the COVID being home and, and working from my home office, there's a real challenge. And I've, I, I have a head start because I've been doing video conferencing for about 20 years. Living overseas and traveling, there were times I was in 40 countries a year. To keep in touch with my family, keep in touch with my office, I would video conference. Well, one of the things that I noticed is that when somebody says, let me share my screen, that's code in English for time for a nap. <laughs> and it's horrible. Basically, a share my screen is I'm going to put something up on the screen and you're going to hear my headless voice off in the distance while I run a presentation. So I got to thinking, how, how can I be present in the room? How can you actually embrace the people in the room and stay relevant? Mm -hmm. So I looked for ways, first of all, of improving the quality of my camera creating backgrounds. They have these, you know, people in Zoom use the, the virtual backgrounds where your head and your hands disappear. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it's distracting. And then how, how can I remain where you can see me as I'm giving a presentation and using some, some actual open source software and a lot of, of playing around have created ways of really becoming emotionally relevant to the people I'm talking to and connecting visually while they're also listening and, and understanding and, and not being as bored by, please let me share my screen, a.k.a. take a nap. <laughs> no, that, that's awesome. I love that curiosity with all that stuff. So what, is the, what does the future look like for you? What are you, what are you uh, working towards? Well, right, right now we're from, from a hobby side of things and, and sort of self-promotion. We've got the Fangled Cast, which is my, my podcast, which is about doing great interviews with, with interesting people specific to a topic rather than self-promotion and, and some of the other sort of social media things that we're doing for fun. In our business, we're, we're continuing to work mostly as uh, fractional chief marketing officers for our clients, which means getting a C-level executive on a part-time basis as opposed to hiring someone with less experience to really go back and build that, that core strategy. And we're also launching a new, and this, this may be interesting to, to some of your folks, We've teamed up with, with these incredible AI programmers. And what we've developed is a system for very specific companies to be able to use all of their data to create strategic sales projections and models, predictive modeling for sales. So if you're, if you're a company, for example, like, I don't know, like a a Granger or smaller but you've got thousands of SKUs in your catalog, whether you're a distributor manufacturer, you've got 20 or more people out there selling, you've got real problems. 
One, you hire 50 guys knowing that five are going to survive because they're not going to learn the product line fast enough to get up to a level. And so, so those, those people need to be trained. You've got an inside sales force that doesn't know the catalog well enough to suggest things to beyond the folks they're talking to. And you've even got that guy who's been with the company for 20 years making a very nice salary without leaving the house. And he needs to or she needs to grow business, but is resistant. And they also, even after 20 years in the company, don't know all the products in the catalog. So what this does is it takes the company's data dating way back and it compares the data to the persona of the client and creates a predictive model for what should the initial mix be that you would offer a customer like that? What are the next products that others have purchased that have been successful? But it's a living and breathing AI. So as people reject and accept offers, those probabilities are constantly under, under flux. So imagine you, you know, it's your first day on the job, you barely know the product line, but you know the questions to ask of your customer to see what kind of customer they are you immediately have a suggestive of where to begin. And now when you go back to see the customer the next time, they're satisfied with those first three or four items they bought. Based on the probabilities, they probably could use item five, six, and seven. Your inside salespeople, it's the fifth day on the job. Somebody calls and places an order. The computer is saying, make sure you tell them about this product. And you're able to grow your business through that, through that constantly learning intelligence. Mm. Uh, it, and it'll tie into almost any any CRM, any any ERP system, and product launches tell you who to launch it to. Then you go back to the marketing side of it. So let's let's use an example. Say you're in the chemical business and you sell cleaning chemicals to nursing homes. And I'll be a little cynical. So you've got the nursing home that loves their elderly people. They want pH neutral, biosafe, pleasant smells, all of that. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a nursing home that it's, we're stockpiling old people, they're going to die, we'll fill the bed when they're gone. And I know that's a little rude, but so, so now as your monthly promotion comes out, why would you send the same list in the same order to those two places? How, how often do you think your email promoting your company goes to someone about a product they have no interest in before they stop opening the email? So through the AI, we can create marketing campaigns that feel like they're talking directly to me as the customer. And, and there's many more levels to, to why it works. But that, that's our big, our big promotion of what we're working on because it's now tested and working and really helping companies grow their sales in ways that they had never thought was possible. And the fact is, most, most guys that work for a company with you know, a thousand page catalog they might make 90% of their money out of 10 pages and all the rest of those products get neglected. Mm, okay. That's, that's very good. I, I, I guess just the, the AI assists the sales team make great decisions or great recommendations. So yeah. I guess websites always try to do that, right? Amazon then yeah. trying to do that. So this is something that takes more of a traditional distributor and adds that sort of intelligence assist. Yeah, we, we argue that the number one asset a company has is their brand. And number two is their data. And most people never use their data to really understand who their customer was, is, and will be. Yeah, that's perfect. Awesome. So how do people get a hold of you? Where do you like to hang out for your social? <laughs> I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. My name, Andrew Deutsch. My company is Fangled Tech. You can find us on the website. And also, you can subscribe and watch our podcast called The Fangled Cast on YouTube. 
It's also available on, I think it's Apple podcast and Google and uh, Spotify. And we also occasionally will get a fax or two smoke signals. <laughs> Courier pigeons. Uh, you, you, I got it. <laughs> the telex machine's broken, so don't send me a telex. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Andrew. And yeah, that was uh, that was a really interesting uh, topic you brought up. Yeah, I really, really appreciate the invite. It was a lot of fun talking with you. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. Also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.